This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. I trust you're having a good day. Well, it's been another busy day in the courts with the arrest of a man wanted on a number of outstanding and serious charges, a not guilty plea for a man accused of arson, and another raw case involving a fatal impaired driving incident uh, that occurred last year. Well, here with an update on those stories is VOCM's Brian Callahan. Hello. Hi, Linda. How are you? Great. So a busy day, of course. Uh, And most recently, I understand that uh, Justin Jennings appeared in court. He's back in custody. Yeah, uh, as we reported today earlier that uh, he had been arrested. So they've been they've got quite a bit of uh, documentation and disclosure on him, um, several uh, information sheets. So it takes a while to get a process to the clerk's office and then to the crown. And then that's got to be sworn in court before it uh, goes to the docket. And then they formally bring him in to to uh, go over the latest charge or the latest, you know, whatever incident um, update there is to his case. So in this case, of course, he was arrested this morning. So nothing really happened. You know, we were waiting for him for most of the day just to, to see what would happen. Um, and just shortly, short time ago, just before four o'clock, when the courts normally close, um, he was brought in. He was in in person and then uh, quickly um, postponed until Thursday morning. And, you know, people might be wondering, well, what's the interest in Justin Jennings? Well, he has a lengthy criminal record, and some of it is connected to some pretty um, serious incidents in the metro area in the last few months. So, um, you know, a lot of that information hasn't come out yet in court, but uh, through various hearings and that sort of thing, we're aware of it. So we're following him in because he, he does have a public and lengthy criminal record uh, with a couple of – back in December, there was a big uh, takedown where people were asked to stay, shelter in place as well. Um, around, let me see, St. Thomas. No, that wasn't St. Thomas's line then. That was Petten's Road area. Um, and that was back in December. And that caused a whole upset of the neighborhood, and people were asked to shelter. And there was another uh, incident back in September uh, in the CBS area. People may remember well that um, it's believed Mr. Jenny is linked to, but I won't go any further than that. Suffice to say, uh, he has a lengthy record, and um, we'll see him again Thursday morning to see where that goes, whether it's a release or uh, another postponement or not. But, um, yeah, he's back in custody, so it's, that's the important thing, I guess. Yeah, and uh, it's related, I, I understand, in, um, uh, directly to um, his being uh, wanted by police uh, following a recent, um, I don't know, dangerous driving episode. Yeah. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Uh, around, you know, there was... Um, well, all the details, see, this is the tangly thing. So he has so many informations that there are, and, and so many of these incidents are alleged to have occurred in the same area, and so many of them are either, you know, uh, driving violations or or threats or, let me see, outstanding warrants, drug trafficking, uh, flight from police. You know, there's a long list here. Um, so, you know, suffice to say the RNC had interest in bringing him back into custody, and they did so successfully. And I understand you you got an update today on a recent homicide uh, in uh, Cornerbrook? Yes, just about 45 minutes ago, I was in virtually in Cornerbrook courtroom for Mr. Blair Walsh's uh, latest appearance. Um, He appeared, as well as his lawyer, Robbie Ash, 
the issue here, of course, you know, I mean, it's it's not a simple case. It's a homicide. So second degree murder is what Mr. Walsh charged with uh, March 28th, the night of. Uh, this happened on Wheeler's Road outside, at an apartment building. Whether the actual altercation happened inside, outside, or whatever, the uh, the victim here, the 63-year-old victim, was found outside. And so, you know, obviously, it's a, it's a big case with um, a lot of uh, moving parts, witnesses, evidence, forensics, all that sort of thing. So they're trying to piece this together. And it's taken a while to get all the evidence in the disclosure because the Crown, of course, compiles its case based on the police evidence and police investigation and all other factors. And then they have to disclose that to the, to the defense so they can decide how they're going to proceed. And so Robbie Ash indicated today that he got some of this disclosure uh, at the first appearance a couple of weeks ago, but they're still uh, waiting for a lot more. And now it's estimated five to seven weeks. And he kind of bemoaned the fact that, you know, he won't be able to really properly um, uh, uh, argue a bail hearing or set any kind of dates for any any future dates. He's kind of saying, that he's, you know, he's kind of hands tied until he gets all the evidence from the Crown. So that's where that is. It happens often, and again, this is not a simple case. So it's probably not surprising that it could take another four or five weeks before he gets it all. Uh, that's all I know there. So Mr. Walsh was briefly there today, and now they're back in on June the 6th. So he'll remain in custody until then. And we'll be watching that one very closely, obviously. Um, The man accused in a a recent string of arsons in St. John's appeared in court today for plea. And that's a a case that uh, garnered a great deal of attention here in St. John's because uh, anytime you see uh, incidents of arson, it's always of great concern. Yeah, always perks up ears, not just one, but when there's two or three in a row. And there are a few others in the same area that are still unaccounted for. No charges have been laid. But this is the gentleman, Alex Hayes. He's 31. He uh, was arrested the day after. We we all might remember like a late afternoon uh, fire, that strange time of day and everything. But this um, historic home right next door to the rooms, uh, kind of known as the observatory, it's been there uh, for, I, I don't want to say the exact year. I don't have it right in front of me, but it's a century old, at least. More than that, I'm pretty sure. And it's got a long history. Anyway, um, there was some surveillance footage and uh, video uh, captured of a gentleman near that house when this fire occurred in, um, I'm going to say, let me see now, January 24th, I believe, the night of. And uh, anyway, this gentleman was arrested the next day. Um, We don't know if it was just based on the surveillance photos that the police sent out. But in any event, he was arrested the next day and he was not only charged with this particular fire at this historic home, but two others, one on Fraser's Lane and another on Empire Avenue. These were both uh, sheds or or garages and uh, they were both set on fire. He's charged with those three. So those two were in January 9th. 19th and the 24th but there's a fourth one that he's been charged with that uh, happened at freshwater auto last october and he's charged with that but he hasn't entered a plea so it's only he's charged with four counts of arson but um, only the three involving areas of downtown this fourth one uh, he's charged with as well but he just hasn't pleaded out to it yet so he was in today uh, and yeah he, he has pleaded not guilty and i was there the first time he appeared and he was pretty uh, defiant uh, than most that you see you know a lot of people come in they're upset and they don't want to be there and all the rest of it but he had this look of i have no idea why i'm here why have you arrested me that kind of thing and he was saying it out loud that you know i mean this is crazy i'm innocent um anyway now he has ple- and you know like i said a lot of people say that but in any event he has pleaded not guilty now and the trial is set for october october the 23rd 
And they've said about a week aside for this, which is a loss for a provincial court trial. And that's mainly because they have like 16 to 17 witnesses, the Crown said today in court. So um, that promises to be interesting uh, if it goes that far. You never know what could happen between now and then. And will he be held in custody uh, until? Yes, he's still in custody, which is also interesting. I um, I don't have all the ins and outs. Some of that was by consent, um, but he he's in custody now, and there hasn't been a plan or a, a bail arrangement uh, in place yet. So there's also been suggestions of mental mental um, health court here too. But uh, again, that's just been brought up in conversation a lot. That happens a lot really these days, and so I don't know if that'll be pursued as well. But I. Do do know that uh, for the time being, he's remaining in custody, yeah. And I understand you also sat in on the most recent fatal impaired driving case uh, before the courts, and I know you've sat in on a few of those recently, too many, uh, many yeah. would say. Uh, so tell us a little bit about this latest uh, incident. Well, we'll remember, I'm sure this one's a little fresher uh, than most in our minds because it only happened this time last year. It was uh, April the 3rd, actually, on Pitts Memorial Drive. Um, uh, the victim here was Brad Caravan. 42-year-old gentleman from Mount Pearl, um, and the uh, accused is uh, Joshua Burt, 24-year-old Joshua Burt, who was um, basically accused of going the wrong way on Pitts Memorial and hitting him head-on. Um, so it, it's a horribly tragic uh, uh, situation. It's the fourth one uh, of, an, I don't want to lump them together, no one of these are any the same or less tragic or anything. These are all horrible for the family and friends of all these people. But uh, the family of the victim, there were relatives there this morning uh, after both the Crown and the defense had a discussion before the judge about they were going to resolve this and uh, they're, they're, they're working towards a resolution and that uh, that always means that, you know, there will be um, some form of agreed statement of facts and uh, a guilty plea at the next appearance. So uh, that was what the Crown was explaining to the relatives afterward outside, and that was what came out in the court. So this is this is the fourth one just since January, either a conviction or a sentence in very similar cases, uh, peer driving causing death. In two of them, um, you know, the, it's, it's believed the victims and accused did not know each other, but in two of them, they were both girlfriends of the drivers, uh, one on Torbay Bypass Road and the other one um, uh, just there by Pitts Memorial and the Ghouls, uh, turn off to the Ghouls, one of the off-ramps here near Kilbride. So it's, uh, it's horrible and tragic, and these sentences are going ranging now three and a half to five and a half years and, and longer in some cases, depending on pretrial custody. Uh, so this one has been uh, set now for June 27th. Uh, the all hands will be back in court on that date, and that's when it's expected the formal guilty pleas will be entered. And then it'll enter the sentencing phase, which usually, you know, the victim impact statements and aggravating and mitigating factors, you know, as to uh, what might offset or I won't say offset, but you know, um, any other aggravating factors that would give them a larger sentence or many minimum um, or uh, mitigating factors that give, might give them a minimum. I'm sorry, my it's been a long day, Linda. I can't tie my tongue properly on time. <laughs> I understand completely. Um, Minimum and, and mitigating, that's what I'm trying to say. And you, yeah, I mean, you sit in on a lot of these cases, and you have over the years. Um, and when you have uh, family members in the courtroom, I mean, what's that like? Uh, what kind of an atmosphere do you, do you witness there? Is it tough? 
It's always tough. It's an it's it's I wouldn't it's beyond awkward, and that's a, a word that I would use to describe what uh, reporters go through because you don't want to seem like you're you know what you might call an ambulance chaser, you know, in the term of you know just out to get the story. You know, there are real you know this could happen to anyone. And uh, God forbid. So, you know, you, you try to walk that line. In this case, sometimes you kind of know the people involved and they will approach you or they know who you are and they'll approach you. But, you know, it's it's one of these things where you really try to avoid uh, getting in the middle of, um, you know, this situation. This is between the families and, and the courts and the, and the accused. And, you know, we, we have to report it, but you try to really be as sensitive as you can not to seem like you, you know, make eye contact or anything because they're going such a horrible time and who knows where their heads are with all of this, you know. So um, it's always awkward because you can hear and you can see the emotion and the pain. And the part of you says, wow, that really people really need to see this and hear this and see, and see the effects. But you can't do that because we don't have cameras in courtrooms like they do in some jurisdictions. Although the day may come, uh, it'd be interesting. Maybe that's a good uh, question of the day, Linda, because it, it often comes up. People ask me, you know, why aren't there cameras in the courtrooms? And it's it's tangly because it's um, there's so much of a court process may or may not be. You know, they go in and out of situations where the information is not public, you know, or not banned, or could be banned from publication. How do you, you know, monitor that and that sort of thing? So uh, it's awkward. Uh, it can be. And sometimes, like I said, especially when you get to the sentencing, you just want to give the space, you know. Absolutely. Uh, Brian Callahan, I really appreciate this. I know it's been a busy day. Uh, thanks very much. You're welcome. And just a heads up, uh, just a reminder, tomorrow the RC Church is uh, most likely going to settle the schools issue in the Supreme Court, and I'll be there for that. And that's going to be a very uh, interesting yeah. case and uh, will affect uh, an awful lot of us. Uh, I really appreciate this, uh, Brian. Thank you. You're welcome. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, that's Brian Callahan uh, with a little update on um, the busy day that was uh, the courtroom today in the uh, metro region and in Corner Brook. Uh, well, the RCMP-RNC Joint Forces Operation West providing a little update on its work to date. It's been in operation now for a little over a year. We're going to speak with RCMP Corporal Jolene Garland after the break. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels newsmakers weather and more join us on your vocm at noon and we're back uh, well um in um, other news today, the RCMP-RNC Joint Forces Operation West is providing an update on its work to date. With 24 arrests and 71 charges laid over the last year or so in Cornerbrook and surrounding area, RCMP Corporal Jolene Garland joins me now. Hello, Jolene Garland. Hi, Linda. So the RCMP RNC Joint Forces Operation West formed uh, just over a year ago, and it's been busy. Give us a little update now on what's been going on. Well, we've definitely made, you know, some dents in the criminal activity, specifically drug trafficking on the province's west coast with, uh, you know, 15 homes that have been searched by a search warrant over the past year within the Deer Lake, Cornerbrook and surrounding areas, as well as a number of additional search and seizures from other uh, properties or other methods, you know, traffic stops and the like. We've had a large number of individuals who have been arrested and charged and certainly a large number of criminal charges that have been laid. 
So this um, operation, is it all connected? Are all of these various um, investigations connected or are they all part of the same mandate, I suppose? So the, the investigations all fall within the uh, mandate of the unit, which is combined of RCMP and RNC officers on the province's west coast. Uh, and it, it basically looks at drug trafficking, organized crime on a smaller level. So sometimes we see, you know, comments on our Facebook posts and the like when we post these uh, seizures. And, and people aren't, I guess, wowed by, you know, say the quantity that might have been seized in that investigation. But this is what this unit is all about. It's about targeting local smaller operations that are going on uh, you know in your neighborhood on the west coast that may have been going on for quite some time and and may not have been dealt with so we're really focused in on you know the local community aspect and getting some of these drugs off the streets getting some of these offenders um, you know really making an impact with all these seizures um, to prevent them from continuing their operations so what prompted the formation of this uh, joint task force well, I guess based on need, exactly that. I mean, you know, we have the province's west coast can be a hub for drug trafficking based on, you know, transportation methods to and from, you know, within the province, either on, you know, through Marine Atlantic, various, uh, you know, vehicles, that sort of thing. Uh, of course, heading up the northern pin, you know, you've got drugs going up there. It, it's a bit of a hub for, you know, dispersing drug activity throughout parts of the province. Um, so the need was there based on the criminality and the fact that we have two police forces, you know, in that area, um, crime knows no police jurisdiction. Crime knows no boundaries. Um, we were intelligence, ga intelligence gathering on our end with the RCMP, and the RNC was doing their thing on their end. But, I mean, obviously coming together, collaborating together, sharing the information involving the same criminals has proven to be very effective with this unit. And how does that work, uh, you know, in a practical sense? Uh, you know, how do you keep those lines of communication open between two completely different organizations? Well, uh, essentially, this unit is a blended, a melded unit. They work together hand in hand in the same office space. Ah, I see. So that uh, that makes it much easier in, in, in those terms. So have uh, any of these um, operations that you've been working on resulted in any significant seizures or arrests? Definitely. So when we look at the, the, you know, the work of this unit in the last year, we've had 24 individuals that were arrested and charged by this unit. Uh, a total of 71 criminal charges have been laid. The majority of those charges are to do with possession for the purpose of trafficking, uh, but we've also gotten into some other criminal elements, which are particular with, with drug trafficking, such as firearms offenses or various weapons offenses. We've even found some you know, stolen property rings where stolen property was recovered, uh, contraband tobacco, possession of other controlled substances, and certainly various breaches of court orders. So I suppose this is what's been prompting some of the calls that we've been receiving at VOCM from uh, residents, particularly in the Corner Brook region, who have been saying, wow, you know, there's been all these uh, drug busts of late and, uh, you know, um, a number of people have been arrested. How come we're not hearing more about that? So I imagine it's part of this this bigger kind of concentration of, of activity. 
so every piece, uh, as far as I'm in the in the loop, Lynn, and I like to think I am pretty well in the loop with the operations of the unit, everything they've done, we've communicated on social media. So anytime you see a release that says RCMP, RNC, JFO West, uh, that's exactly the work we're talking about, what this unit has been doing and, you know, who, who's been targeted. You know, we will name individuals that are, uh, have been charged. Uh, we will name those individuals. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of public interest out there because residents, you know, within the community, they don't want this activity going on in their neighborhood. And what can we expect now in the uh, in the coming weeks and months? Uh, is this work ongoing? Continued work in this regard. I mean, this unit is uh, you know fully functional, effective. They have a designated uh, you know line at the at their their office to receive reports of tips of suspected drug activity within the neighborhood in the community. That number for all West Coast residents seven zero nine six three seven four two two one, where you can speak directly to a police officer of the Joint Forces Operation West and provide any information that you may have on you know drug activity within your community. All tips will be taken uh, and investigated, and those having, you know, a level of merit to them would be uh, furthered in investigations, could be resulting in charges uh, to drug dealers in your area. Corporal Jolene Garland, I appreciate your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. And um, that's Corporal Jolene Garland speaking about the RCMP, RNC Joint Forces Operation West, which has been in operation in the Cornerbrook and surrounding area for the last year or so. Coming up, Twitter causes a flap after attaching labels to a number of news organizations, including the CBC, the National Public Radio in the U.S., and the BBC. This is News Talk on VOC. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And we're back. And if you are one of the many people who um, uses Twitter, you will know that the CBC Radio Canada paused activities on its corporate and news Twitter accounts yesterday after the social media platform put a government-funded media label on its account. It's one of a number of news organizations that were given that label, including the National Public Radio in the U.S. and the BBC in the U.K. But what does it mean? Well, here's Professor of of political science at Memorial University, Alex Marland. Hello, Alex. Hello there. Long time no speak. Yeah, it's it's a. I'm really glad you reached out. I'm I'm happy to chat with you. Well, uh, so glad that you could join us. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, discussion and consternation uh, being expressed now about uh, these changes that Twitter has made and its identification of some uh, news organizations, including CBC, NPR, and the BBC, as uh, government-funded media. Um, what are the the larger, I guess, implications of something like this? Well, I mean, why don't we look at both sides of this? So on the one hand, you could say that this is absolutely terrible. This is Elon Musk uh, really trying to exert his uh, right-wing politics over what he perceives to be left-wing media um, by labeling certain media outlets as government-funded or you know state-operated. It's sort of suggesting that they can't be trusted. It's suggesting that they have a political agenda. Um, and so, therefore, uh, we shouldn't pay attention to them because they're probably propaganda. 
Um, then we could look at it on the other side of things and say, well, you know what? The, the average person doesn't really pay attention to Twitter. Um, they certainly don't care if there's a little remark about whether something is government funded. Um, and a lot of people might say, in fact, these outlets are government funded. So he's only just saying the truth. So um, it's, it's a really interesting uh, situation where you've got these two different points of view on things. Um, and the bottom line is it's, it's fascinating that people are, you know, essentially reporting about the media as opposed to necessarily reporting about other things going on in the world. Indeed. Uh, but does it speak to something else? Does it speak to this uh, political agenda you sort of hinted at earlier? I mean, it's it's hard to be able to get into the mind of, of Elon Musk. Um, you know, he clearly has some political uh, connections. And, uh, you know, a lot of people would say if you own a media outlet, you have the ability to choose how you want to run it, um, and others can respond accordingly. Um, you know, I think, you know, how much of this is a concern? I mean, I think for a lot of people, this is an incredible concern, and then other people would say it doesn't matter at all. Now, you said, it, I mean, a lot of people are talking about the media as opposed to talking about, uh, you know, some of the things that are affecting our lives. And there are a lot of uh, very intriguing uh, political stories that are affecting all of our lives right across the globe right now. Um, are, are we getting accurate information when it comes to uh, some of these uh, machinations, I suppose, uh, regarding things like uh, um, alleged Chinese political interference and the, the war in Ukraine and, and some of these other major issues? I, I think a lot of the time, I mean, journalism gets a hard rap, uh, sort of, you know, the same to some extent as politics does as well. Um, the thing is, a lot of us are still adjusting to this because journalism it can be extremely uh, important to our to our system, obviously it is, but it's when it's done well. And the same thing is true of, of, of politics. You know, there are some very noble people in politics, and they can achieve really good things. But it only takes a few difficult people to to kind of um, harm the occupation as a whole. From my point of view, I think we're definitely in a real challenging point for journalism, and. You know, it's not just because of people going online and, you know, purposely disrupting things, purposely stirring the pot and putting out fake information and confusing us. Um, but I think for me, it really begins with journalists trying to figure out what their role is. Um, you know, you have some journalists who will say, I'm, I'm not going to have editorialize at all. I will only project what I perceive to be the facts and I'll try to get all different angles of the story. And journalists who do that are um, incredibly talented, and they're often working with very few resources. I don't think that people really understand just how much pressure journalists are under to file a story while um, doing all sorts of other things, and often on a topic that they knew nothing about or very little about the morning that they started working on the story. Um, on the other hand, I think where journalists are, are really trying to figure out what to do is because of social media, a lot of them are, have this, this sort of online persona where they're talking about all sorts of different things and they're weighing in, they're providing their opinions. And so now you're seeing a different side where you can start saying, wait a second, this person is left wing or this person is right wing or they're weighing into the debate instead of just providing the facts. And that makes things difficult for journalists who only provide the facts. So this is what I mean by saying that I think that journalism is really going through a period where they're trying to understand what is the role of social media in the life of a journalist and their public persona? 
it's interesting you mentioned that because it's it's my observation having been at this game for quite some time now that uh, we've had this shift towards the term journalism for uh, the last I don't know 10 or so years when in fact prior to that a lot of people uh, involved in this business were reporters i.e. here's the information that we've received and here we're giving it back to you it's up to you to decide yeah it's funny that you say that because um a prominent journalist in Newfoundland said to me maybe 15 years ago, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador needs a lot more journalists and not as many reporters. And what he meant when he said that was journalists, in his view, are people who are not afraid to question, uh, you know, government officials or, or other people who are putting out information, whereas his perception was reporters were people who were simply taking the information and posting it as it's received. Uh, the reality is, I think, in society that you need to have both. Um, but, you know, there's no question whatsoever that journalism is actually, it, it requires a lot of resources. I mean, it takes a lot of time and effort to be able to investigate things and to be able to report on them in a way that provides uh, a balance of facts. And yet at the same time, we need reporters who are saying, you know, here's some information that just arrived, is breaking news, and we're just providing you the facts as we have them at the moment. Uh, you know, we don't have time right now to get into a two-month investigation into what this particular issue is. This is happening right now. Do you think uh, that uh, the um, profession of journalism has been challenged by social media in particular? Has has the job gotten harder? I can give you my opinion on it, but <laughs> I want to uh, get your take on it. So I always try to look at the positive. And I think the main thing that we should think about is for all the challenges associated with social media, and there are many, um, including, you know, the term fake news exists for a reason. Um, but I think what we need to think about is the positive is the ability of journalists to be able to, to uh, perceive a whole bunch of different angles to a story or a whole bunch of different voices that in the past they wouldn't have been able to. So in the past, you know, you would have had to make sure that you knew who to phone. How do you know where those people are? Would, would those people simply be people in your own network already? And now what you can do is you can look online and you can follow a story and you can figure out, okay, I want to contact that person. That sounds like an ordinary person who I wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise. So it is a way for journalists to be able to, um, you know, essentially act in a, in a more democratic manner. It's reduced some of the elite, uh, elite gatekeeping of who gets to be in the news um, by having journalists follow a story that the public is generally saying is important through all the likes and tweet, uh, tweets and that sort of thing. Um, but I think ultimately there, there's still a downside to that. And the real downside is if journalists are sitting at their desks or increasingly sitting at home because of uh, remote work and simply following what's going online, as opposed to going out and pounding the pavement and, you know, talking to people and cultivating relationships. Um, so that's an important part of journalism. It's making sure that you have human relationships that go beyond the computer. Do you think uh, that there's a, 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 a um, this attempt that we've been seeing recently that's really been at the forefront? Is it more apparent now from a political standpoint of this effort to undermine um, journalism and the work that journalists do? Or has it always been there? We're just more aware of it now. You know, that's a great question. I think... It, it, there is some value in historical perspective here. And I think that a lot of us might think, well, you know, it used to be better. And I would suggest, well, was it? I mean, when you really start looking at it, uh, there were times that things were, were not necessarily better. I mean, 
you know, before Watergate, what would happen is journalists were often very cozy with politicians. And so much so that in uh, Canada, and I've, I've read a lot about this, um, in Canada, it was very common for journalists to spend a lot of time with the prime minister, for example. Uh, and even, you know, when they were in town, they might stay over at the prime minister's house uh, with at Mackenzie King, for example, um, just to say, well, you know, I'm in town. Can I come stay with you? And, the, you know, the whole quid pro quo was, you know, the prime minister would provide all sorts of information about government in exchange for positive coverage. Now, that sort of thing still happens in terms of where you do have these, these relationships um, that are, you know, I will, I will give you privileged access in exchange for positive content. Um, but after Watergate, where, you know, the big investigation to what was going on with uh, Richard Nixon, uh, you know, there's a real change where uh, journalists kind of evolved from being uh, what some people call lapdogs into attack dogs. And all of a sudden now it was this sense of we can't t- trust any journal or any politicians. They're all bad. We all have to look for just some negativity about them. And then this created an adversarial relationship where now um, journalists became almost, um, you know, an, an opponent of a lot of politicians. So now politicians got to put up their guard and then they became less accessible. Uh, they also used a lot of um, different types of media relations techniques to say, well, you know, we're going to put out a news release at five o'clock on a Friday. We're not actually going to talk to you about this issue and uh, we're going to bury news and we're not going to be available. We're going to talk in uh, sound bites. We're going to repeat messages and this kind of thing. Um, you know, one, one other comment about historical perspective, uh, if you were to go back to the 19th century and really around the time of John A. Macdonald and Canada being formed, I mean, a lot of what John A. Macdonald and, and people in, in his era were doing is they were saying, well, what are we going to do to get positive coverage? Let's find somebody who can buy a newspaper. And so somebody who was very wealthy would actually buy the newspaper and then turn the newspaper into something that was very pro-party or very much uh, in favor of the party leader. And so the idea that today you would go out and buy a newspaper, obviously there's all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't do that. But there, there are some commonalities with what's happening today. It strikes me as you're speaking, uh, when you're talking about Watergate in particular, uh, I saw a um, documentary recently where um, during the uh, the height of the um, anti-Vietnam War uh, protests and that that were building in the United States uh, uh, contrasted with um, Richard Nixon's plans to actually um, augment the war in Vietnam, um, he sent out Spiro Agnew, who made this uh, big speech attacking journalists and and uh, reporters who were there with their cameras you know reporting on these this growing unrest in the country where people were saying enough uh, we don't want this war anymore um, and and some of what he said very similar to what we've been hearing from politicians in recent years yeah and I would say that that's always going to be the case because there's always uh, an opportunity for populists um, who you know, try to show that they are the people who know better than the elites um, about how things should work and, should, you know, kind of portray that they're a commoner, that they're one of the people. Um, populists sometimes can attack, and, and actually it's part of their playbook, is they attack institutional structures and say, you know, the entire system is broken. And part of that in recent years in particular has been actually attacking the media and saying you can't trust the media. So it used to be that you can't trust bureaucrats or you can't trust uh, the government or, you know, established politicians and political parties. Um, but now it's much more of the repertoire of saying you can't trust journalists. And, of course, that's absolutely unfair. 
Well, uh, we remain to see uh, how all of this will evolve over time. Um, it's uh, it's getting tougher in this business, I have to admit. Uh, but I do appreciate your time, Alex Martlin. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the program. And Alex Martlin, of course, is a professor of pol- political science at Memorial University. Um, we have this advisory. I'm going to let people know about it now. Harbor Grace RCMP concern for the safety and well-being for, of a woman who is reported missing from the area, 39-year-old Amanda Whalen. Um, anyone with information on her whereabouts is asked to contact the RCMP or Crime Stoppers. Once again, uh, police uh, concern for the safety and well-being of 39-year-old Amanda Whalen, who has been reported missing. Um, if you have any information on her whereabouts, you're asked to call and t- contact Harbor Grace RCMP or Crime Stoppers. Uh, when we come back, the Premier addresses questions surrounding the commissioning of Muskrat Falls and the ongoing dispute in the crab fishery. This is News Talk on VOCM. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And we're back. And Claudette, I understand you have a puppy missing his Yeah. So uh, we have one of our VOCM listeners, Sheila McKinnon uh, Drover, who was walking her standard poodle down at Kitty Vitty Lake. And she said, gosh, I had to call into VOCM because this dog is obviously missing. Just looked like it was freshly groomed. So the details on this dog, just in case you're missing one, uh, it's a male, light tan dog, appears to be freshly groomed, no collar, two feet tall, roughly, and uh, currently north side of Kitty Vitty Lake near the gazebo. Now, she was walking a while ago, uh, within the hour, uh, but she said the dog was heading toward the Kitty Vitty Village itself. So if you are missing a light tan dog, you might want to start searching there. A uh, freshly groomed one, yes. by all accounts. Aww. And she has a standard poodle. Oh, my goodness. Aren't they beautiful? What beautiful animals. And smart. Yes. Highly intelligent. I think they're one of the most intelligent breeds. Yeah, what a dog. Uh, so, yeah, if you have a uh, tan-colored dog that uh, may have just been scrubbed up, <laughs> you might find them somewhere in around the uh, Kitty Vitty Village area. Well, the Premier has uh, spoken on the Muskrat Falls project for the first time since Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro declared it to have achieved commissioning, despite what critics say might have been a premature designation. Testing of about 700 megawatts was done this spring with no hiccups, but detractors say let's wait until more testing on the Labrador Island link is done with uh, greater load bearing next winter. Well, Premier Andrew Fury spoke with reporters this morning, including VOCMs. Brian Medore. Well, of course, I'm cautiously optimistic that uh, this is a step in the right direction, certainly, um, uh, whether it being officially commissioned or not. We're still cautiously optimistic uh, on this project that it is moving forward. Um, so, um, you know, I'd like to thank the team that took over, that we appointed to get it to this point. Uh, but again, I didn't create the project, but we are trying to finish the project, and this is I think a step in the right direction. I've spoken to a number of people who have said that it's it's premature to say this is considered commission given all the problems. Do you agree with that? I'm cautiously optimistic that it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. 
That doesn't sound like you endorse full commissioning as of now. Well, I, I mean, I'm not an engineer. I don't, I don't, I don't officially uh, uh, commission the project myself. Uh, certainly be having the conversation with uh, Ms. Williams and her team uh, about uh, the reliability and the load that was, uh, that was tested under. Uh, but it's certainly, look, it's not a project I created. It's one that we're trying to manage. I do think that this is a, a good step in the right direction from where we took it over. Are you, in your discussions with Hydro, timeline for things like final cost for the project or, or rate mitigation, how, when people will know uh, uh, how their bills are going to change? Do you have so, any understanding of that? So we made the announcement uh, over about a year and a half ago with mm -hmm. respect to rate mitigation. That plan stands. When uh, Ms. Williams says that we have to work out the details, it's the actual kind of financial details uh, 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 and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Mm -hmm. The money, the reorganization of the deal that we did with the federal government, $5.2 billion, just for the, to remind people at home, $3 billion of new cash will go to ensure that uh, rates do not double, uh, that they that it's a smooth progress with respect to rates. That's not some that's money, by the way, for people at home that we could have spent on hospitals, we could have spent on the healthcare crisis, that we could have spent on building new schools, paving roads. But here we are having to spend it to ensure that rates don't double or double with respect to this project. We inherited it. We're fixing it. This is a step in the right direction. Will it be the last step? Certainly not. But it is a step in the right direction. And, and crab harvesters are uh, desperate to see some measures that will allow them to get back on the water fishing. The price at two twenty a pound is uneconomical for them. At a protest on Monday, some called on the provincial government to allow them to export their project outside Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, Premier Fury was asked about that as well. One of the requests was, why can't we export from the harvesters our product to other provinces? Uh, processors can bring it in from other provinces. Why can't we send it to other provinces? Your reaction? I'd like to have a discussion with uh, Mr. Pretty and the FFAW to see if that's their position. Uh, you know, uh, I understand that that is the position of some of their members, but perhaps not all their members. And if that's a conversation that they want to have, it'd be certainly one that we we, we would be willing to have. What would have to happen in order for that to actually be facilitated? Would government have to do something, change legislation? Is it a provincial thing? Uh, my understanding is a regulatory change at best, uh, but uh, that would be a discussion that we would have to have with the FFAW. And if 155,000 federal workers walk off the job tomorrow, it will be the largest strike against a single employer ever in Canada. It comes as mediated contract negotiations continue between the Public Service Alliance of Canada and the federal government with a deadline of 10.30 Newfoundland time tonight to reach a deal. Wage increases have been top of mind at the bargaining table, as well as work-from-home options, with the union has asked to be written into a new collective bargaining agreement. Well, the Premier was asked about that this morning at the NLO conference as well. Strike tomorrow? Of course I am. Um, we're always concerned when services are disrupted. Um, uh, certainly concerned for the workers, concerned for the citizens that will have the services disrupted. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, there will be some resolution uh, with the federal employees prior to the strike moment. But look, no one wins in a strike. Uh, citizens don't win. Uh, and so hopefully uh, with this particular uh, potential job action, there can be resolution before. 
So that's Premier Andrew Fury uh, responding to questions about uh, how um, Newfoundland and Labrador might be impacted if members of the Public Service Alliance of Canada do in fact go on strike as of midnight tonight. The deadline, of course, to reach an agreement in ongoing negotiations is 10.30 Newfoundland and Labrador time. And we'll have all the latest on that tomorrow as uh, the situation plays itself out. And uh, Canada's annual inflation rate fell to 4.3% in March, reinforcing the expectation that it will continue to fall rapidly this year. BMO chief economist uh, Douglas Porter says inflation is expected to continue slowing as global price pressures continue to fade and high interest rates weigh on the economy. March marked the lowest annual rate of inflation since August of 2021. Well, the question is, are we going to start to see the effects of that uh, on our own pocketbooks and how much we're spending in places like the grocery store? Uh, That remains to be seen. That's it for News Talk today on VOCM. I want to thank everybody for for uh, listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned for that. We'll have all the latest, by the way, on the Public Service Alliance of Canada uh, situation and whether or not uh, those 155,000 workers will end up on strike and how it affects you. Stay tuned for that. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone.